Welcome to another Everything is Football podcast. We have a very special guest joining us today, Kevin Payne. Kevin, thanks for being with us. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Just a bit of background with Kevin. He was um, one of the founders of the MLS. He was on the MLS Board of Governors. He assembled a first ownership group for DC United in 94. With his time at DC United, his team won four MLS Cups, four Supporters Shields, two U.S. Open Cups, the CONCACAF Champions Cup, and the Inter-American Cup making D.C. United the most successful professional soccer team in American history. Payne has also spent time as the GM of Toronto FC. He has served as a board member of U.S. Soccer and has also been involved with the FIFA Global Committee for Club Football. He now serves as the CEO and Executive Director of U.S. Club Soccer, which is an affiliate program of U.S. Soccer, which has over half a million players and coaches around the U.S. Um, so our, our first, Kevin, our first big question for you is, did U.S. club soccer bring you in in order to try and compete with the academy that has just kind of formed in the past five years? No, no, not at all. Um, uh, U.S. club soccer brought me in. The, um, the U.S. club soccer have a little bit of an unusual structure. Um, the organization is a 501c3 organization, but it's managed by a for-profit company. Um, the majority of employees are employed by U.S. club soccer, but the senior management is employed by the management company. Um, that management company is owned by an old friend of mine who uh, I've known since uh, the late 1980s. He asked me to um, take this role. Uh, Bill Sage, who had been the CEO and executive director, was approaching retirement. And uh, I think that I think that U.S. club soccer was looking for someone with um, a little different experience and some different ideas to transition from Bill. So that's okay. how I got involved. Okay. Very cool. Very cool. Um, so another, another kind of question that has to do with the youth players and the youth system in the U.S. Um, so how is there, is there a goal in mind to get the Marshawn Lynches, the LeBron James, to continue playing soccer? Um, I, maybe they played when they were growing up, ages like 8 to 10. Is there, a, is there a goal in place to try to get those players to continue with the sport? Um, or, or is that kind of luck of the draw, and we just have to hope that our best athletes play soccer at the higher level? Yeah, our focus is not so much on um, trying specifically – to identify future world-class athletes, because there's a very good chance that when when LeBron James was uh, nine or ten years old, or when Marshawn Lynch or uh, Odell Beckham were that age, that it, you know nobody necessarily thought they were going to become the players, and the athletes that they now are. Right. Um, and that, that's one of the tricks of the process. Um, no one knows at those kind of ages who's going to mature into the superior athlete. Um, our problem in the United States is because so much pressure is put on the players and coaches uh, in youth soccer to win games. There's right. an overemphasis on favoring those young players who have developed physically earliest. Right. And the, the reliance is too great on the physical side of the game and not enough on the developmental side of the game. So we have to change that mentality for the top, for the, those players who might potentially reach the top. But we also, in order to do that, 
we have to change the environment for every player. Uh, right. The, the only way to ensure that you don't miss anyone is to make it a better experience for everyone. So that's what uh, U.S. club soccer and our players' first program is focused on. It's really a philosophy. It's intended to try to educate and encourage clubs to better communicate with their parents and develop uh, an environment that is a much more wholesome one for every player in their club, not just the players that are identified early as the best. Right, right. You know, our problem, uh, and it's not just a soccer problem, it's a youth sports problem, but soccer is uh, among the uh, sports that encounter it the, uh, to the greatest degree, is we're losing uh, a significant majority of young players before the age of 13. Uh, it's estimated that soccer is losing anywhere from 70 to 75% of players by the, uh, before the age of 13. And uh, just mathematically, that tells you that we're missing uh, the opportunity at real talent um, before we ever have an idea of how good that talent can be uh, can become. So right. That's, right. that's something that we have to change as a nation. Right. So with that, um, you know, we've seen sort of the growth of the academy system. And in particular, one, one thing that interests us is really um, – the beginning of residency academies um, in the U.S., uh, one in particular I can think of is Real Salt Lake. So w interestingly enough, with a lot of what you were just saying, it actually sounds like possibly some of these academies introduced at too young an age, maybe with this philosophy that, that you're driving. Do you think that's true? Well, that's true? my opinion. You know, that's my opinion. I, I was very, very – I chaired the U.S. Soccer Technical Committee when the academy was developed. And I was the primary uh, spokesman uh, on the kind of political side within the Federation for developing the academy. Um, and I still believe there's a real role for the academy. Um, I think, I do believe that it needs to change in some ways. I um, specifically, I believe that it's a big mistake to try to extend actual academy enrollment to kids in the under 12 age group. I think what Academy should be doing is providing really broad-based supplemental training opportunities to kids under the age of 12, but those kids should be allowed to remain with their current clubs and play with their friends. Um, we, we had this idea that somehow we can do what no one else does and we can, um, you know, we can identify the kids uh, at the age of 10 or 11 who are going to become superior athletes and we'll put them in our program. We'll tell everybody else that you've failed. Um, and we create attention that doesn't need to be there at those kind of ages. Kids aren't equipped right. uh, emotionally for that kind of judgment um, at those ages. And I personally think it's a big mistake by U.S. soccer. Um, and it's something that I will continue to work to convince them of um, there's a lot of strain on the development academy system right now, I believe, uh, because there's too much of an effort to make it directly resemble uh, what exists in Europe. Right. And, you know, what we have to remember is that the United States and geography and population is about the size of the entire continent of Europe. But we only have 20 
first division soccer teams, you know, at some point in the near future, that'll rise to uh, 24 in the U.S. But uh, to distribute that across a population of 330 million people is challenging. Uh, the idea that all of the DA programs should be free for the players that play for them is a great idea. But I think what um, what gets missed is the is the fact that these programs are never free. Somebody is paying for them. So in Europe, it's you know that experience is being underwritten by hundreds of professional clubs. Um, in this country, uh, it's that's not the case. So uh, the non MLS clubs are being put under a great deal of pressure to offer a completely tuition free program, and they're just passing that along in many cases to their other players. Right, um, right. You know, they don't, yeah. the, you know, many of these clubs, they don't have the same uh, agenda that, that the MLS clubs have. They don't have a, you know, a wealthy owner who's willing to make that investment in order to uncover talent, uh, either to play with for their own team or possibly to sell to teams abroad. That option doesn't really exist for most of the academy teams. So, I think that there needs to be a reexamination of the academy, uh, and I think that's very healthy. I think that that it's appropriate that the academy right. be looked at periodically from top to bottom. Um, there is a process of that underway right now, but I think it's too focused on, in my own opinion, it's it's too focused on trying to um, create uh, our academies exactly in the mold of the academies in Europe. And I just don't think that's realistic. What right. we should be looking at is why after the advent of the academies has our uh, men's national team program enjoyed its worst um, <laughs> period, period of results um, really in modern history. Um, it's not since the 80s have we uh, been as unsuccessful as we have been in a number of recent competitions. So that's something we really have to take a hard look at. Right. Right. Yeah. And I, I mean, of course we, we see the foundation today uh, obviously started many years ago when you were one of the founding members of the MLS. Can you, Kevin, can you take us through what it was like to be involved in, you know, that original meeting when FIFA tells you a soccer that, the league is going to be a reality. Uh, how did you get involved with the group and just what was it like in general? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't a matter of FIFA telling us it was going to be the reality. You know, that was another example of a bunch of Europeans thinking that they understand how the United States works. And it's really a different ballgame entirely. I mean, we're by far the largest sports economy in the world, but, uh, you know, the, the amount of competition that exists here from very well-established leagues and college sports, which there's no comparison, there's no equivalent to anywhere else in the world. Um, you know, there were a lot of realities that had to be understood in order to get MLS off the ground. Uh, the very first meeting that I was at, um, I think the only people that actually uh, that were at that first meeting that ended up in the league were uh, the Hunt family. Um, at my group, the uh, the group that was uh, well, the the group that was uh, backed by Metro Media. Uh, in that case, it was Stuart Sabinek, who was the CFO of Metro Media, and I think vice chairman. 
And then uh, Mark Rappaport, who led a group from Los Angeles. And, uh, you know, we had that, that hardcore group of four investor operators that were pretty committed um, from an early stage, but uh, we needed, we wanted 10. And uh, it took a lot of work. And we never did get to 10 in the initial outing. We, we got to eight. Uh, but uh, I suggested and, and uh, Metro Media and uh, the Edgeshoots Corporation agreed to uh, buy an option for second teams each, which got us to the amount of money that we felt we needed to start the league. So it was quite... It was quite a challenging environment. We worked through much of, two, of 1994 uh, and 1995 and didn't, um, didn't really announce that it was going to go forward until the summer of 1995. Um, and didn't, my recollection is that we didn't actually sign the uh, operating agreement and the limited liability corporation agreement until the fall of 1995. So, didn't give any of us a lot of time to actually prepare for the start of play in 1996, and it was it was quite a frantic race. Yeah, no, I definitely um I definitely heard that there were there were the financial struggles and the option deals, which made creating the league actually a possibility. Because I, I believe you guys not being able to start the league if you didn't have those other investors. Um, can well, you take- we all yeah we all had had set a threshold, a minimum threshold of. Uh, of available cash for the league, um, and that number was fifty million dollars. And if if we right. didn't have, if we didn't get to that number up front, then we weren't going to go forward. Right, right, right. Can you take us to uh? Can you take us to MLS Cup in '96, and um, what that was like, and and what the atmosphere was like at the stadium? Were there were there and and even after after the game was finished. Was there a sense of relief that there, the first season had been completed and it was successful, or was, was it more of a worry um, leading up to the next year? Will will we be able to pull this off again? Um, well, if I could take you there, I would tell you to bring your rain gear. Um, <laughs> you know, it was uh, it was quite an event. Um, the rain, the the weather was generally was just horrible. Um, for a couple of days, it was a massive nor'easter that battered uh, the greater Boston area. I, right. I remember sitting. I remember sitting in my hotel lobby with uh, my wife and uh, Phyllis Arena, um, and we we were at a restaurant that fronted on the harbor, and we were watching this big ocean-growing freighter trying to enter the harbor. Um, with and it had a number of tugs attached to it, and it kept getting blown toward the shore. And eventually, they gave up and actually left the harbor and and just went out into the shipping lanes to try to ride the storm out there. It was pretty wild. Um, I took a uh, I took a cab actually to the uh, to the game uh, the MLS. Uh, auto pool was being used by all the NLS staff. <laughs> so uh, even though I was the president and general manager of one of the two teams, I had to, I had to pay $95 <laughs> to a taxi to go to the game. Um, 
And, uh, you know, when we got there, uh, when I got there very early, the tarp was still on the field and they were just getting ready to start trying to take it off the field. And they, you know, there was so much water on it. They didn't have a motorized system to take it off. So it was, it was very, I mean, it was almost impossible for them to get it off. In the process of getting it off, they ended up spilling, you know, huge quantities of water in certain parts of the field. <laughs> um, they were doing, you know, they did their best, but it, right. these were pretty unprecedented weather conditions. I think we got something like nine inches of rain the day of the game. Wow. Um, and, you know, the, the, the conditions were just abysmal uh, for the people in the stands and for the players on the field. I watched uh, a good part of the first half, actually, from a box upstairs and then said to a colleague of mine, you know, we shouldn't be up here. We need to go down in the stands. So at halftime, we walked down uh, to the stands. It was in the old Foxborough. It was took a really. It was the slowest elevator on the planet, and it took a really long time to come down. So we waited till halftime because we were going to miss too much of the game if we didn't. Huh. Um, and watch stood with my family and uh, with the uh, screaming eagles and Barra Brava and watched uh, the second half in the stands. And okay, cool. We we missed. Um, Raul Diaz Arce missed a really good opportunity to score with about 16 or 18 minutes to go. And my friend and colleague put his arm around my shoulder and said, I don't think it's our day. And I said, you know, if we score one goal, we're going to win this game. And uh, sure enough, about four or five minutes later, um, Sean Medved scored the first goal. Um, and then Tony Santa, Tony Santa scored that, uh, you know, majestic second goal. And from then on, I think it was all DC United. Um, right, right. And uh, we, you know, our players just were not going to be denied, and particularly our best players, uh, Marco Echeverri, Jaime Moreno, uh, Raul, uh, John Harks, Tony Santa, really played with uh, – a tremendous level of commitment. It, it was a it was a pretty spectacular sporting event visually and in terms of right. drama. Right. So, okay. Kevin, uh, obviously that first MLS Cup, uh, you know, huge event. But and obviously you have the four subsequent MLS Cups and all the other trophies. But from your position at DC United, uh, obviously you had these two spells there. What do you feel your biggest legacy that you left? at the club was, and maybe for the league at large, uh, what were, what were the biggest things you felt you did in your time? Well, there, you know, uh, there are a couple things that I'm, I'm pretty proud of. Uh, I, I insisted from the beginning that, uh, we were not a gimmick that we were, uh, a division one professional soccer club and that we represented the traditions of the, greatest game on earth. Um, and that's the way we built our organization. That's the way we tried to develop our relationship with our supporters and the community. That's the, yeah. that's what was reflected in our name, in our logo, in our uniforms. Uh, and I was really alone in that at the league. Um, I, I was, I mean, I was talked about, I know this, you know, that I was talked about derisively by a lot of the people in the league office as the soccer guy. <laughs> um, 
there were some people, uh, one senior executive who shall remain nameless once said in a board meeting that we should give all of our general managers a soccer quiz and every one of them that passes it should be fired. Wow. Uh, and that was the, you know, that was the attitude at the time of, uh, of many of the people that were involved in running the league. Um, we, that was not our attitude. We had a completely different attitude. And it took almost 10 years before the league finally, you know, adopted the football, football, football uh, slogan and finally just said, you know what, this is what we are. And we need to celebrate that, and we need to celebrate that with our supporters. Um, so I'm I'm proud of that. I, you know, at DC United, I have some other more specific things that I'm proud of. I, I'm proud of the fact that, uh, you know, we had a distinct style of play. Uh, probably the first team in the league to to develop a style and maintain it uh, over a period of time, even with different coaches and players. Um, we certainly uh, created the supporters culture um, in the league. Uh, we spent um, a tremendous amount of political capital with the stadium authority to ensure that our supporters could celebrate properly and bring drums and horns and big banners and so forth into the stadium. Right. Many of the stadiums in those days um, prohibited that kind of activity. Um, and we were also the first club to become really involved in the community uh, on a, uh, a charitable uh, basis. Um, and I'm, I'm very proud of that, uh, that those were things that set us apart, um, I believe, certainly set us apart in D.C. I think that in many ways we were the most respected sports organization in D.C. for a number of years. Um, I know that, uh, you know, when Ted Leonsis acquired the Washington Capitals um, on a, more than a few occasions, he sat down with me or he asked me to sit with some of his senior executives and talk with them about, you know, how we had created the relationship that we had with the city and with our supporters, which we were happy to do. And, uh, you know, the Capitals have now... Um, Developed that, that kind of relationship of their own, and they've been very successful as a result. So, right. you know, I think we were an organization that stood for something, and um, everybody in the organization understood that, and, and our our supporters understood it as well. And that something uh, did include the football part of it, you know, how we played and the way we approached the game, but it also uh, went beyond that, and I'm I'm proud of that. Yeah, I was actually talking to the guys about this before you came on that the the rise of DC um, and the sustained success for so long just really reminded me of you know what Sir Alex did with with Manchester United both on the field and off the field and hearing you talk about that I see a lot of similarities so no wonder that that DC United enjoyed such success but uh, with with the development of the league and what we've seen in the recent years can you see MLS ever competing with the big boys in Europe uh, in the near future? Or do you think that's still a little far-fetched? Well, no, I think uh, it depends what you mean by competing. Um, you know, right now there literally is no real competition on the field. Um, 
I think MLS has gone from strength to strength and will continue to do so. Uh, you know, the, there's larger and larger amounts of money being spent on uh, on football in uh, in the European leagues, but I think there's actually sort of a point at which um, the amount of money no longer um, equates to better football. I mean, there's only so many players, and uh, you know, if you take the same player and pay him $5 million a year instead of $2 million a year, that doesn't make him a better player. Right. So, you know, there it's possible that there may be greater consolidation in, in certain leagues like the premiership. Um, I think there still are, uh, you know, there, there is still an identity that exists, a cultural identity that's associated with the sport that, um, for my mind, at least, as far as the football is concerned, uh, convinces me that La Liga, for instance, is a superior football product to uh, the Premier League. So I don't think money is the only um, the only uh, metric that goes into you know the value of a league. I think that MLS will continue to grow. I think it will grow in a measured way. The board of directors of MLS is extremely strong. They're very focused. Uh, leadership in the league office is very good. And there's a clear understanding of uh, how MLS wants to evolve and how the owners need to work together. I don't think that necessarily exists in uh, many of the other leagues. Um, I, I think in some ways, uh, some of the corporate structures in some of those leagues, I believe, are, are antiquated. They're they're really uh, a relic of you know the way the sport was run when when teams were local community organized affairs, which they clearly are not now. Um, and you know, I was talking to somebody the other day who who uh, uh, has invested in a, a team and. In England, and, I, 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 and this person was a an advisor to the investor, and I said, you yeah. know, the, one of the problems is no matter how much money you make there, the supporters are going to expect you to spend it all, and then, right. Right. um, you know, I mean, so England has this tremendous influx of television money, and they will have even more next year, but I'll be curious to know how many teams are actually producing a net operating. Uh, revenue. Um, right, right. And, all and, the and like I said, it's, it's one thing if you're going to pay an exorbitant amount of money to Cristiano Ronaldo or Lionel Messi, but when you're paying exorbitant amount of money to just an average left back, um, I'm not sure that that uh, equates to, you know, a better quality, that you're simply paying uh, an average player a lot more money than he used to right. expect to make. Well, and that's something that MLS has tried to be mindful of. Right. But is there is there still an issue with paying Pirlo the highest salary on the team or Lampard the highest salary on the team and not spreading out that money to American players who not necessarily deserve it more but have, have developed and they feel can develop? And may maybe that's a better place to, to put that money in instead of the exorbitant amount of money that they're giving to Pirlo? 
Yeah, I, I think that um, I think that that's a you know a valid uh, question to ask, and each club has got to make their own determination on that. Um, you know, is Andrea Pirlo worth on the field? Is he worth ten times as much as um, you know a, a, another player Josh, on uh, Josh, Josh Saunders, who played great last last season, who kept them from finishing dead last? Yeah. Um, you know that that the answer to that is pretty self-evident. Uh, yeah. He's not. But but when it comes to, you know, there is an entertainment aspect of this as well. So right. when you're trying to establish credibility, um, you know, you need to you need to have names that people can instantly identify with. Um, I do believe that uh, that it will in the long term it actually will work to the league's benefit to um, pay the American players more money. And I, and that's happening, I think, through the collective yeah. bargaining agreement because it will make more players look at the sport and say, I can make a living at this for quite a while and right. I can you know, retire in a very good position um, even if I don't go overseas. So I think that's really important. Um, you know, when you, you asked at the outset about some of these sublime athletes that we know played soccer, you know, uh, I, uh, I spent some time with Nomar Garcia Parra and he told me that had he been able to make the same, anything close to the same money in soccer that he could in baseball, he would have played soccer. He, he liked it more. Right. Um, you know, I think Odell Beckham is another example of somebody who, uh, you know, who was quite a good young soccer player, but, you know, it's pretty hard to, to say that they made the wrong decision. Right. Um, the way things are now. Yeah, Steve Nash is another one. So, you know, that's going to take time. And I, I don't think we should – I think MLS is doing it in a measured way. I think to rush it and to just suddenly dump, you know, a huge amount of additional money into the system would probably not have the effect that, um, that some people think it would. I really don't think that money alone solves all these problems. Right. There's more in it. So, Kevin, um, obviously MLS really – a lot of what American soccer fans see at stake in it is really largely um, the fate of the the U.S. national team. And with Jurgen Klinsmann um, being hired in 2011, he really promised to – sort of revolutionize our system, you know, bring us that German model that has, that brought them to the, the World Cup final and victory in 2014. What do you think about what he's really done? What has he really changed? What, what has been positive and negative in your eyes? Well, I, uh, I thought at the beginning, one of the things that uh, was refreshing about Jurgen was that he, I felt like he opened up the player pool he, he you know he was willing to experiment with a, a larger number of players so you um, like that you 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 approve of that experiment because obviously um you know very recently abby wambach actually came out and was you know very vocal about how she was really against uh sort of looking for those german american players and maybe emphasizing a focus more on homegrown players well, I, you know, Abby's an expert on women's soccer. Um, 
I'm not sure that, you know, she has spent as much time studying um, the circumstances around the men's national team as um, Jurgen probably has. I don't have any problem at all uh, with Jurgen uh, or any other national team coach identifying a player who might live in another country, might even have been raised in another country, um, and bringing them into the national team pool if they're better. So, yeah, you know, certainly. Thomas Dooley, Thomas Dooley was, was different than our American players when he came into our program. Uh, Ernie Stewart was different. Roy Weggerly, uh, you know, we tried for years to get Roy Weggerly naturalized. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, we missed his best years with the national team. Um, so I, I don't have a problem with that. I think that's a very normal part of the game. Um, you know, I'm not a nativist. Uh, politically or in terms of football. Um, but what I do have a problem with is a, is any kind of presumption that simply because a player is playing in a European league, they're automatically better uh, than a player who's playing in MLS. So I think that needs to be made on a case-by-case basis. And I, I do think there have been times where um, you certainly it certainly appears that Jurgen gives added weight to the value of a playing experience in Europe as opposed to a playing experience in MLS. And, and I actually have a, I have a theory on this with regard to some of our most talented young players that um, I think in many cases, you know, for, for a player who you want to actually influence the game, they have to be in positions on a, on a routine basis where they are expected to do that, where they're expected to control the game, they're expected to make the incisive killer pass. They're, they walk on the field with the responsibility on their shoulders to make the game for their team. Um, you know, that's the way it was for us in D.C. United with Marco Echeverry. Every, every game that he walked out there, he felt like uh, everybody, the other team, his teammates and the fans, everybody expected him to make the game. And he was willing to do that. He enjoyed that. Um, you know, I think what happens sometimes with talented young American players is they go abroad, they join a big team. Uh, th- those kinds of instincts are actually coached out of them. Uh, they're asked to just be safe and careful and do a job. Um, and I'm not sure that that's always the best way for them to develop into the player that the national team needs them to be. Right. You know, you can't, you can't spend uh, all of your time with your club team in a supporting role and playing careful passes and then suddenly throw a switch with your national team and now be, you know, Michelle Platini. Right. Uh, right. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. And so I really think in a lot of cases, the most creative young players we have should at, at the very least should start their careers in MLS and right. see if they develop to the point where they can play the same kind of role for a team in Europe. That's, that's what right. happens with, with players from South America. You know, they'll, they will establish themselves as a difference maker uh, in their domestic environment and then be afforded that same opportunity when they join a bigger European club. And while sometimes that makes them, it may take them time 
to adapt to a different type of play, they don't get turned into a, a holding midfielder or, right, you know, right. if, if, if it took Hamas time to adapt to Real Madrid, they never contemplated making him a left back. <laughs> right. So I, I just think that, I, I don't think these things are anywhere near as simple as people would like them to be. I think every situation is different and there's, right. it's, it's a mistake to try to assume that there's some blanket, um, you know, order that can be laid over this. So I, I, I appreciate the sentiment that Abby was expressing. Um, but I, I really do think it's on a case by case basis. So, you right. know, I, I think that Abby and Johnson has been a great addition to our national team program. There's Definitely. been some other players. There's other players that I look at and, and I say, there's, there's better players than this in MLS. And, you know, right. I can only assume that these guys are getting opportunities because they happen to be playing in, in Europe. Right. Yeah. And, and I, and I agree. I think if Jurgen's job is to make the national team as good as it can be, then that's what he's doing by recruiting these players. And then I also agree that there, there are U S players that develop and become the player they are in the MLS. And then maybe there are European options, but, Maybe their maybe their best bet is to just stay in MLS. Jossie Zardes, for example, was debatably the national team's best player in the past calendar year, and, and he's been great for for LA also. So, um, I definitely I definitely appreciate your points on that. Um, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna end it here. Yeah, gentlemen, thank you very much. I enjoyed chatting with you. Thank you, thank you so much, Kevin. There you have it. Take care of yourselves. Everything is football podcast. Come back next time. Thank you, Kevin, so much for coming on. Ooh, I like the way you look. Please don't get me mistook. I'm sick of playing it by the books. I think we should get a room. Yourself and your shoes ain't off the shelves. You straight out of magazine. Feel things I ain't ever felt. Yeah. Yama, yama, D-N-A-N.